Uh, we are continuing in our seven-week series about our values. What do we value as a church? What matters the most to us? And this morning, we're on to our third value. Now, these first three values are what I call super values. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't be here the next four weeks, but it means these first three are the ones, these are the hills that we will die on as a church. The gospel the mission of God, and the community of the saints. And so when we talk about community, what we believe is that God is forming a people and not just saving individuals. In 2004, I was a part of a team of about 60 people that traveled over to Belfast, Northern Ireland. It was first of three trips that I took over there. And in fact, the flags in the lobby that you see, many visitors and and guests will ask, uh, what are those flags all about? And how come my country's flag isn't up there? And that's a fair question. But those flags represent nations that we've traveled to as a church and sent teams to, to do ministry. And one of the things that's going to happen in the renovation is we have a very exciting new way that we're going to communicate that. I can't wait for you all to see that. That'll be in the lobby very soon. Um, But we went to Northern Ireland in 2004. And one of the things that happens when you travel to other countries is that you have to learn that there are some cultural differences, right? There are some things that are different about America and Northern Ireland. Now, we speak the same language, although if they're speaking quickly, I can't understand what they're saying because the accent over there is pretty strong. Uh, but we learn that there are things that are different, and it's often in language and in things that you do with your hands. And sometimes we would get in troubles on trips because we didn't know certain things. So let me give you a couple examples from Northern Ireland. Uh, you know, there's a, if you wear pants, like Ray's wearing pants right now, that I would call these khaki pants, okay? Khaki pants. Everybody knows what I mean by khaki pants. They're brown or light brown uh, pants, right? Well, in Northern Ireland, we would talk about khaki pants, and they would all die laughing. And we say, what's so funny? Well, over there, the word khak is slang for feces, uh, but not a, a nice way. Uh, and pants is a term they use for underpants. So when we said we we're going to go put on our khaki pants, they thought we were going to put on our poopy underwear. Like, that, that's, that's what they heard. So we, we didn't know that. We learned quickly. And then we also learned that uh, hand gestures vary, right? So um, for us, if we go like this or like this, this means peace. And so we would be saying goodbye to people. They'd come to these outreaches. We'd tell them about Jesus. And as they're leaving, we'd be like, peace, see you guys later. Come back tomorrow. Well, the missionary ran up to us like, don't do that. Don't do that. And we're like, why? He's like, this, this is peace. But you turn your hand around, and it's the middle finger over here. And so what we're doing is we're saying, Jesus loves you. Have a good day. (laughs) Very conflicting messages. Very confusing. One of the the things that we had to learn the quickest about Northern Ireland was the conflict that has gone on in that nation for years between the Catholics and and the Protestants. Now, it's not actually a religious issue. This is much deeper than religion. And uh, what we learned was that the, the goal of the overwhelmingly Protestant majority was to remain a part of the United Kingdom. They wanted to remain loyal. In fact, they were called loyalist or unionist. Then the goal of the almost exclusively Catholic, which was the minority, was to become part of the Republic of Ireland. So Northern Ireland is a different country than the Republic of Ireland. And this is, a, this is a territorial conflict. This is not a religious one. And uh, if you know this in history, there was, for 30 years, there was war. Low-level terrorist-type war with car bombings and stuff like that. Lots of deaths, lots of, uh, lots of devastation. It was called the Troubles. 
And the troubles were somewhat resolved on Good Friday. In fact, it's called the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. April 10th, 1998, the leaders of the Protestants, the leaders of the Catholics sat down and they signed an agreement. And so by the time we showed up in 2004, it had been six years since the troubles had ended. But you know, just because somebody signed something doesn't mean the trouble ends, right? And when we were walking around the neighborhoods in Belfast, what was really striking to us is how some sidewalks were painted green and some sidewalks were painted orange. And if it was painted orange, it was for Protestants to walk on. And if it was painted green, it was for the Catholics to walk on. And then they had these really huge divider walls everywhere you would look, dividing neighborhoods. And they have the most ironic name. They're called peace walls. They don't look like they're very peaceful, but they're called peace walls. And so everywhere you look, there was the lingering effect of the troubles. And we would talk to the teenagers and the children, and they would say to us, well, we still just live within our own Catholic community and go to our own Catholic churches and talk to our own Catholic friends. We don't like the Protestants. But then they would add this. We don't really know why we don't like them. We just know that we're not supposed to. And so we walked into this climate when we went over there trying to share the good news of Jesus. Now, a study of history, especially in the ancient world, will suggest this, that none of today's social, social distinctions or cultural conflicts or racial barriers, none of the ones that exist today, and there are many that still exist today, none of them are more exclusive or unrelenting as the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles in biblical times. Let me give you some examples. The Jews believed that Gentiles, non-Jews, the Jews believed that Gentiles were created for one reason, to fuel the fires of hell. And it was not lawful for a Jewish person to aid a Gentile woman in giving birth because they would be helping to bring what they would call another heathen into the world. It was an intense hatred. The Gentiles had a tremendous animosity for the Jews, and actually they had hatred really for anyone who wasn't like them. Plato said that barbarians, it was a word they used to describe anyone who wasn't Greek, a barbarian, they were his enemies, naturally his enemies, not by choice, not because they'd done anything wrong, but simply by nature. Because you're not like me, because you're not my ethnicity, you are my nature. The Gentiles were dogs to the Jews, and the Jews were homicidal enemies of the human race to the Gentiles. And in this climate, and in this societal uh, norm, the church emerges. And it was radical. Because the church was the one place where Jewish people and non-Jewish people, the Gentiles and the Jews, came together. Because, you know, the gospel was spreading quickly beyond the Jews. Jesus came first to the Jews, but, you know, now the message is spreading to the Gentiles. And Paul, the apostle Paul, becomes the apostle or the missionary to the Gentiles, and he travels the known world to cities like Philippi and Colossae and regions like Galatia. And that's where we get the books of Philippians and Colossians and Galatians. And one city that he traveled to, we can read of it in the book of Acts, is the book of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a wealthy city. It was right on the water. It was a port city. It was the center of learning, and there were trade routes that went all around Ephesus. So Ephesus was kind of the place to be, and it's in modern-day Turkey. So if you look at a map today and you find the country of Turkey, that's where Ephesus was. Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, to the church at Ephesus, while he's in jail in Rome, awaiting his execution. He can't get to them because he's in jail, but I want you to hear as we read this this morning, he has such a heart for them. He wants to get to them, but he can't, and he has a heart for them. And the passage we're going to look at this morning shows that his heart for them was that they would become a community, 
a people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic standing, that they would be one people. And Paul, right off the bat here in verse 11, he leans into this idea that the Gentiles and the Jews used to be separated. Look at what he says, verses 11 and 12. He says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, in those days, before all of this, you were living apart from Christ, alienated from Jesus. You were excluded from citizenship amongst the people of Israel. You were, you were outside of the people of God, and you did not know the covenant promises that God had made to them. And he summarizes it with this devastating one-liner. You lived in this world without God and without hope. Now, as we start to talk about community this morning, I think we have to pause and ask ourselves this. With all the evidence throughout history that people can't get along, with all the current evidence, right, all the tensions in our world, all the tensions in our government, whether it's what's happening with Russia or what's happening with Syria or what's happening with North Korea, all this current evidence, right? Let me just say, as, let me pause and say, as Christians, how do we respond to all of that? As followers of Jesus, how do we respond when we see these tensions around the world? What, can I make two suggestions for you? Number one, we don't panic we pray, right? We don't panic, we pray. How do we pray? We pray how Jesus told us to pray. God, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. We pray for truth. We pray for our leaders. Regardless of what you think about our leaders, we're called in scriptures to pray for them. We need to pray for them because they need our prayers. They need Jesus. They need wisdom. They need truth. They need humility. They need insight. They're making decisions that affect all of our lives. And so we pray for them. But then also be sure that we pray for those who serve, our men and women who serve in military, that we pray for them. Those that are at the front lines risking their lives for what our nation is being led into. And so we don't panic, we pray. And the other thing, number two, we don't worry, we witness. Now let me explain. In Acts chapter one, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, the disciples gather around Jesus and they ask him a question. Is now the time that you're gonna restore the kingdom, right? What are they asking? Is this the end? Are we at the end? Is it over? Are you gonna inaugurate and install and, and sort of finalize the kingdom? And it's when Jesus says to them in verse 7 of Acts 1, don't worry about it. Don't worry about that. But, then this very famous verse, but you will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses. What is he saying? He's not saying don't be aware. He's not saying don't notice the signs of the times. He's saying don't Spend so much time worrying and wondering and speculating that you forget that the primary purpose you're still here is to be a witness. So we don't panic, we pray, we don't worry, we witness. But we have all this evidence historically, we have this evidence currently, and let's zoom in real quick. Don't you have some evidence in your own life that doing life with other people is hard? This isn't just an issue between nations. This is an issue between people, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, family members, estranged. We have all this evidence piling up. So here's the question. Why don't we just give up on this? Why don't we just give up on trying to do life together? Let's just all go our own separate way and forget this whole idea of community because clearly it's not the easiest thing in the world. And the answer is simply this. We can't. We can't. Let me, let me tell you why. Community, when it comes to being a human, 
Community is the most natural thing for you. Community is unavoidable, and community is inevitable. And there's evidence of that everywhere. Think about children as they are, as they are born and as they are growing. I have three little girls, nine, seven, and four. And I got to tell you that they're all born with the same need to belong. Different ways of uh, demonstrating it, but they, all three of them want to fit in. They want to belong. We didn't teach them that. That's not a learned behavior. I didn't spend any energy. Aaron, my wife Erin didn't spend any energy saying, hey, when kids ignore you, your feelings should get hurt. When you get left out, make sure, make sure that you, you get angry about it. We don't have to do that. Why? Because it's in us. It's in all of us. We're born with this longing to belong. It's right there as we're born. The other thing is that we, we can lack or lose even basic life skills if we're not in community with each other. This past couple of weeks, I've been listening to this podcast uh, called Serial, and it's telling a story about a soldier, uh, an army soldier who uh, was captured by the Taliban and, and held for five years. He's actually a very controversial figure because he, he, they, he walked away. And he was captured for five years. He lived in isolation. And when they finally rescued him, they exchanged prisoners for him to get him free under President Obama. And when, when this actually happened, they picked him up, they put him in a helicopter, and immediately they wanted to debrief him because he'd just been inside the Taliban for five years. They wanted to know all the answers. And what they discovered is because he had been away from people for so long, he had been in a room in the dark, only getting food, no communication, no conversation. He had forgotten how to say stuff. He had forgotten how to put sentences together. It took him days and weeks to just begin to really remember, what is it like to talk to somebody? See, when we lose community, we're out of touch, we can't, even, we can't even carry out basic life skills. How else do we know that we're wired for community? How about our propensity to want to share everything? You know, I can't even have an enjoyable aesthetic experience without wanting to take a picture of it so I can show somebody, right? Or thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so was here right now to experience this. That's how we're wired. That's what social media is built around. That's why you, if you follow me, you'll see the food that I eat because I enjoy it so much. I want you to see it. I want you to enjoy it or at least to be jealous of what I'm currently uh, enjoying. We even do it with things that are gross, right? You know that. Oh, this, is, this smells weird. Here, smell it, right? I mean, we do that. We just, everything we, ha- we, we have to share. And here's another thing. We don't even know who we are outside of community. Think about how you introduce yourself when you meet somebody for the first time. It's almost always in relationship to someone else. I'm so-and-so's son. I'm her husband. I work here. I went to school here. We don't even know how to introduce ourselves apart from community. I was watching a, a um, documentary on Netflix this week called Chef's Table, and this episode was about a famous pastry chef named Christina Tosi, who has a little pastry spot in the east, lower east side of Manhattan called the Milk Bar. She's famous for making cereal milk ice cream. So it's ice cream that tastes like the milk that's left at the end of your cereal bowl. And it's very, very popular. And she was talking about her experience of trying to find herself as a pastry chef. And she said this, and it stuck with me. She said, I wanted to be myself, but I want to be myself in a community of people. I thought, that is so telling. We're all trying to be ourselves, but you can't be yourself outside of community. And so here we are. We have this need for community. Why? Why do we have this need? Well, the Bible gives us a reason. Because we were created in, every human was created in God's image. What does that mean? 
It means that like God, we have a mind, we have emotions, we have a will, we have creativity, we have dignity, we have worth. But here's what else it means. Because you were created in the image of a triune God, you were created for relationship. See, the Christian faith believes in what we call the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is this, that God, there's one God but three persons. And I don't know how to explain it. It's a great mystery. My strongest argument for the validity of the Trinity is simply this. Who would have made that up? Like, who, makes, who just makes that up? What human mind just comes up with that? Who sits around and goes, well, this will make sense to people. Let's, let's do this. Like, it makes no sense to our minds. But you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, distinct in their personhood, but the same in their heart, one God. So what that means is that God has forever existed in relationship with himself, not floating around by himself, but in relationship with himself. So when we've been created in his image, in Genesis 1, it says, let us make man, let us make human in our image, third person, us in our, God the Father turns to God the Son, turns to God the Holy Spirit and says, hey, let's make humankind in our image. That means we've been created for relationship, which by the way, explains why Adam is lonely in paradise. Before sin entered the world, Adam was lonely. So, What this means is your need for other people, the need for community is not because we're sinful, it's not because we're broken, it's because we're human. It's because we're image bearers. Now, what does this mean for us this morning? It means this, you have to be careful of saying or believing these lies. I don't need others. I don't need friends. I don't need community. All I need is me and God. It's weakness and stupidity to rely on other people. It's not worth the risk, so I won't try. Now, I know that there can be um, trauma in people's lives that lead them to those beliefs. But here's what I want to challenge you to, to consider. When you say one of those things, here's what you're really saying. I refuse to bear God's image in that way. I'll bear his image in other ways, but not in that way. It's too risky. Or you say this, uh, you're saying this, I know a better way to be human than what God designed and planned. I know a better way. Okay, so community. Now, what does biblical community look like and what does God expect? We're gonna go back to this passage in Ephesians 2 and we're gonna jump down to verse 17. As we read this, I want you to listen and look for the three metaphors that Paul uses. Now, every good English teacher would say, don't mix your metaphors. Paul must have had a bad English teacher because he is the king of mixing metaphors and he mixes three of them. Let's look at this beginning in verse 17. Speaking of Jesus, it says, now Jesus brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. So both peoples needed the peace of God. The Gentiles who were far away because of the law and the Jews who thought they were near because of the law, neither one of them could be saved by the law or kept out because of the law. Jesus had to bring both near. Verse 18, now all of us who can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. By the way, verse 18 is one of the best verses in the scriptures to show us the Trinity at work. Did you see that? None of us can come to the Father through the same, no, sorry, all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. Three persons, one God. Verse 19, so now, here come the metaphors. You Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself 
the cornerstone laid first that every other stone is laid in accordance with. Verse 21, we are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord, a dwelling place for God. Through him, you Gentiles are being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. Okay, we're gonna go through these metaphors quick, but there's three of them. You probably caught, caught them. First one is this. These are in your notes if you wanna fill in the blanks. First metaphor, we are citizens in the same kingdom. We're citizens in the same kingdom. Paul said, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You're citizens now. The word strangers in the Greek there means uh, people who were complete foreigners, who had no status and no privileges. A foreigner was a non-citizen who dwelt in the city, and they had some limited privileges, but they couldn't do things like vote. And so what, uh, what, what Paul is saying is there's been a change in your, your status and that's one of the things you have to understand about being a Christian. It's not just a change in your feelings. It's not just a change in your emotions. It's not just a change in your behavior. It's not just a change in your schedule. I didn't go to church, I go to church now. It's a change in your status. Your legal status has changed. You are a stranger or a foreigner, but now you are a citizen with full rights. And so what Paul is saying here is that in Jesus, and against all odds, And in the face of the social norms, believing Jews and believing Gentiles were becoming one people. Jesus was making one people out of two. Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. It's in heaven. That's where our citizenship is. So he's saying there's something greater than any citizenship you have on this earth. The Gentiles and the Jewish believers had a common language. They had a common heritage, a common story, a common history, and now they had a common goal of glorifying God and joining his mission. But most importantly, and this is what I want you to understand about this metaphor, here's what it means. They had a common allegiance that superseded and surpassed all other allegiances and it overcame the allegiances that they didn't happen to share. Okay, does that make sense? So as a citizen of the kingdom of God, we have an allegiance now to a king that supersedes any allegiance that we have to anyone else and anything else, and it's an allegiance that's so strong that can keep us together even though we don't share certain lesser allegiances. Does that make sense? Here's another way to say it. To be the church... To be the people that God intended us to be, to live in community means this, that we now share a commonality. We now have something in common that surpasses anything else that we might happen to have in common. Some of us happen to have some things in common. We root for the same teams. Maybe we vote the same way politically. Maybe we like to eat the same stuff. But that doesn't really matter because that's not what the church's strongest commonality is. We have a greater commonality. You've heard me say this before, but my favorite definition of the church was provided by a man named D.A. Carson in his book, Love in Hard Places. And this is what he says, that the church is a band of natural enemies who love each other for Jesus' sake. It's my favorite because it's so true. The church is a band of natural enemies who love each other, or we probably should say who are learning to love each other for Jesus' sake. This is what D.A. Carson is saying. Look around this room this morning. Like, in what other environment would we all come together? What other setting would we do life together? Yes, some of us have things in common with each other, but I actually know some of you feel very differently about certain things. I haven't introduced you to each other yet and told you what those things are, but some of you have very, I know this because of Facebook, some of you have very different opinions on things that you feel very strongly about, and you know what? It's okay. 
because we have a commonality that surpasses any differences that we might have. We're a band of natural enemies who are learning to love each other for Jesus' sake. And what we gather around is our shared love for Jesus and our shared desire to live on his mission, like Jared talked about last week. And this is the commonality that trumps all others, whether it's personalities, opinions, politics, preferences. Now, if this is true, here's what it means, and we'll go to the second metaphor. If this is true, it means that you'll stay, you'll stay, or at least you'll, 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 you won't run during conflict and you won't run away during crisis, you'll, you'll stay. Because you know, hey, okay, so I don't agree with that. That doesn't match my preference. I don't really like that. But at the end of the day, that's not why I'm here. I'm here because I love Jesus, and you love Jesus, and I care about his mission, and you care about his mission. And that's what keeps us together. In fact, some people would say, until you've actually gone through a crisis or gone through a conflict and stayed, it's not really community anyway. It's just convenience. How do you move from convenience to community? You stay when it gets hard. You stick around in conflict and you lean in. Second metaphor, we are children in the same family. Paul says you are members, in verse 19, you are members of God's family. Now what does this metaphor mean? Two things I think it means, one thing I know it means, okay? Here's two things I think it could mean. You know, when it comes to family, there's a loyalty, isn't there? I know there's very... There can be a lot of dysfunction. I know there can be very unhealthy families where maybe there's not loyalty. But for the most part, there's a loyalty in families. Let me give you an example. Growing up, if you had a brother or sister, you might have gotten to some physical altercations with them at times. You might have uh, laid your hands on them, but not to pray for them, you know, if you know what I mean. You might have uh, done something to bring bodily harm to them. And you were, you were that person's brother, you were that person's sister, and you could do it. But what happened when somebody outside of your family tried to do that to your brother or sister? No, never. Why? Because in family, there's loyalty. You're basically saying, no one hits my brother but me, right? (laughs) No one yells at my sister but me, right? So there's this intense loyalty, and I wonder if Paul is playing on that because family back then was actually stronger loyalty than family is today. So number one, I think it's about loyalty. Here's the other thing I think it's about. I think it's about being yourself. You know, there's a big difference having dinner with just the family and having dinner with uh, people who aren't in your family. And maybe on Thanksgiving, um, you're going to have people over. Well, what does that change in the dynamic of the room? Everybody wears kind of nicer stuff. Everybody puts all their clothes on, right? <laughs> like uh, everyone uh, eats like a human being and not like, a, not like an animal, right? But what happens when it's uh, Thanksgiving and no one's there but family? Everybody's got their stretchy pants on. <laughs> Everybody's wearing messy stuff. And everybody's just, you know, you just grab that leg of, leg of turkey and you just eat it like you're a barbarian, right? Because you can be yourself around family. And I think there's something beautiful about Paul calling us the family of God because what he's saying is when you come to church, this should be, I know it's not always, and I know we're, it takes work, but this should be the safest place in the world to be yourself. The safest place. But for many people, it's the last place in the world that they're themselves, They put on a facade. They put on their best clothes. They put on their best act. And they walk in thinking, I have to impress people. When Paul says that we're the family, he's saying, hey, wear your stretchy pants to church. (laughs) Like, be yourself. It's safe. The church is, I heard it said this way recently, the church is a safe place for sinners, but not a safe place for sin. Is that good? It's a safe place for sinners, which, by the way, is good news for all of us. Hope you didn't just think about other people right then. A safe place for sinners, but it's not a safe place for sin. Why? Because the truth is going to be taught and preached, and the Spirit's going to be at work. 
and is going to put to death the sin in our lives. So that's what, I, that's what I think it means. Here's what I know it means. When Paul says that you're children in the same family, he's definitely saying this. You are in family, you're in a family, and here's what Paul's saying, not by your choosing, but by someone else's choice. And actually, this is very clear in the Gospel of John. Let me read it to you, verses 12 and 13. John says, but to all who received Jesus, who believed in Jesus' name, he gave them the right to become children of God. In verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This was John saying, if you're in the family of God, it's not your choosing, it's his. He chose you. And because he chose you, and because you're in of his choosing, you don't just choose your way out. You didn't choose to come in, he chose to bring you in. So what does this mean for us this morning? And then we'll get to our last metaphor. It means this. Everybody wants loyalty and acceptance, right? And everybody comes looking for it in a church, and when they don't get it, sometimes they leave. But what if our attitude was, instead of who's going to be loyal to me and who's going to accept me, what if all of our focus was, how do I offer those same things to others? How do I prove my loyalty to people? How do I accept people? Hospitality, which is one of the reasons we're doing what we're doing in the lobby and the cafe, hospitality by itself doesn't change people, but it creates a space where people can be changed. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. How are we creating a space as a church where people can come in here on a Sunday morning and they can belong before they believe? They can sit here, they can listen, they can disagree, they can argue, they can say, I don't, I don't agree with anything the pastor said this morning, but it's okay, you can belong. You can be here. You can be a part of this because we're gonna love you and we're a family and we're believing that God's choosing you to be a part of the family. And one other thing this means, by the way, is that if your faith community is just like you, if everyone in your faith community looks just like you, because, you know, there's a trend now where people are saying, I don't need to go to church. I got lots of Christian friends I just hang out with every now and then, and we are the church. Technically true. The church is not a building. The church is not us. The church is the people of God anywhere we gather. We're the church, right? Here's the problem. When you choose who's in your church, then it's not God's choosing. It's yours. And if they all look like you and think like you and act like you and they're at the same age as you, first off, you're at a major disadvantage because you can only learn so much from people who are at the same stage in life as you. Is that true? But here's the other disadvantage you're at. You might have a club, but you don't have a church. And there's a big difference. And that's what it means to be the family. Last metaphor this morning is this. So we're citizens in the same kingdom. We're We're children in the same family. Lastly, we're stones in the same building. Paul finally switches to this last metaphor. He likes this one. He uses this one a lot. He talks about us being living stones who are being built into a structure, into a wall, built in. Now, what does this mean? It means two things. Number one, it means that being in community, being in real biblical community, listen, you're not going to like this. It's going to cost you something. And what it's primarily going to cost you at first is your own comfort level and your own convenience level. Because when you're built in, I want you to picture a wall here with bricks or stones built in. Stones are relying on other stones. They're they're on each other. And then there's ones on top of them. And what this means is that if you're going to be a part of the community, then you're going to enter into the risk and you're going to make yourself vulnerable because other people are now dependent upon you and you're dependent upon other people. And we don't really want that. We really just want to be dependent upon ourselves. But the community costs us something. Here's the other thing that it means. It means that this is so important. If this is true, if this metaphor is true, that we're living stones being built into a temple, it means this. You can't be what God's called you to be on your own. Sorry, you can't do it. 
No stone lying on the ground is a temple. No stone by itself is a part of a wall. And God's called us to be a temple where his spirit can dwell. Well, how are you going to be a part of that temple? You've got to let yourself be built in. You got to be in. You got to risk the comfort. You got to risk the convenience. Because what's at really at risk is this you'll never be who God created you to be if you're just sitting in a pile of stones over there. You got to let yourself be built in. So, what does this mean? And we'll close. If it's not real community, or sorry, it's not real community, let me say it softer than that. It might not be real community if it isn't costing you something. What's it costing you? If you don't know what it's costing you, you may not actually be as built in as you could be. You know, it's much easier to show up on Sundays and kind of get yours and leave than to serve or to engage. You know, it's costing people something right now for us to be in here without children and babies screaming and running around. It's costing them something. Nursery workers, Trinity kids, Pastor Vicky, every Sunday, giving up time. And of course, we have a rotation, so most workers are only there once a month. But once a month, they say, I'm willing to, to pay the cost of missing the service. It costs something. Second thing it means is this, and this is a, such an important thing for our society to hear. Spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity is more connected to community engagement than individual spirituality. Let me say that again. Spiritual maturity, true biblical maturity, growing into the image of Christ is more connected to your engagement in a community of saints than it is to anything you do on your own. Now, what you do on your own matters. You should have your own prayer time. You should have your own Bible time. But if you think that's what's going to mature you into the image of Christ, you don't understand the New Testament. You're not reading Paul's letters correctly because Paul almost never uses the pronoun you in the singular form. It's always you all, right? Or in the South, y'all. I mean, that's always what he's saying. So anytime he says, except for one exception, but every other time in the New Testament, Paul says, you are the temple of God. Here's what he's saying. You all are the temple of God. Not just you by yourself. I mean, yes, that's true because his spirit dwells in us. But Paul's saying, together you're the temple of God. Don't believe the lie, and this is a lie. Don't believe the lie that you can become a fully formed disciple of Jesus by yourself and on your own. It doesn't happen. Okay, we're gonna close. How do we do all this? Let's go back to the text. And I just wanna read to you the part that we skipped, the middle. Verse 13. How do we do community? If it's so important, but it's so hard, where do we find the strength and the motivation? Verse 13 says this, but now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility. We're going to talk about that phrase, wall of hostility in a second. Wall of hostility that separated us. Verse 15, he did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations, all these rules that the Jewish people had to follow and that the Gentiles thought they were going to have to follow. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Last verse, 16, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross and our hostility toward each other was put to death. A lot of times we think, well, the cross was about our hostility towards God. Yes, it is. But Paul makes it clear here. It's also about our hostility towards each other. It's our evil racism. It's our ethnic superiority. It's us thinking that wealthy people thinking they're better than poor people. Poor people thinking that wealthy people are this. That It's our categorizing of people. It's Republicans saying this about Democrats. It's Democrats saying this about Republicans. It's all of those things. 
And so Paul says that when Jesus went to the cross, he was restoring not just the hostility, he was putting to end not just the hostility between you and God, but the hostility that we have towards others. Uh, two bits of information, and then we'll pray, that will help you understand what we just read. That phrase, wall of hostility, what was Paul thinking when he wrote that phrase? Well, I learned this in my studies this week. In the temple back then, there was an outer courtyard where the Gentiles could go. The non-Jewish people could only get so close to God. And there was a wall. There was a wall separating them. And there was a warning written on the wall for the Gentiles. And the warning was this. If you pass beyond this wall and go into the inner court, you have only yourself to blame for your death. And this was the one exception where the Romans actually gave the Jewish leaders the right to execute somebody. Remember the Jewish leaders couldn't execute Jesus because they didn't have the right to do so? This was the one exception. If they could have accused Jesus of this, they could have executed him. But Jesus wasn't a Gentile, so they couldn't accuse him of this. This was the one time. And so there was a warning. Gentile, dog, if you go beyond this wall, it's on you. What's coming next is your fault. Now here's the other bit of information I never knew until I was studying this week. Paul writes his letter to the church of Ephesus and he's sitting in prison. Now, you know why Paul's in prison? Paul's in prison because he's been falsely charged with taking a Gentile beyond that wall. Paul's in prison because they conjured up a charge. They wanted to kill Paul and they knew the only way they could kill Paul was this charge. And so they made up this this false story that Paul took a non-Jew inside the temple in Jerusalem. And so Paul's awaiting execution because he took a Gentile into the presence of God and now Paul was gonna have to die because he did it. And here's what existed before Jesus. If you wanna get in to the presence of God, you gotta die if you're a Gentile. You gotta die and whoever helps you get in is gonna die too. But Jesus goes to the cross and he says, no, I'll die to get you in. I'll die to break down the wall of hostility, not just between you and God the Father, but between you and every person in your life. Now, come on, where is there there hostility still in your life? We all have it. Hostility may not be the best word, but where where, where is there difficulties in relationships? We have them. Jesus died on the cross not just to make you right with God, but to make you right with each other and to make us a community because he's forming a people. Let's pray together this morning. God, by your Holy Spirit, do what these words are unable to do and change the hearts of your people. Make us a people who love you, who serve you, and who love one another and serve one another. The great two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And God, we repent of the ways in which we have not loved our neighbors. Neighbor is not defined by proximity or commonality. Neighbor is defined by opportunity. Anyone we have the opportunity to love, we're called to love, and we'll never be able to do it in our own strength. So we do it in your strength, seeing what Jesus did on the cross for us. We love you, God. Make us a people who are centered around your gospel and living on your mission. Let it mark us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.